This morning's reading comes from the book of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and then 35 through 41. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now skipping down to 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome again. Glad that you can be here. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve as a pastor of our church. Uh, just a quick note that we got together this morning with men to pray as we have launched into this new season called Lent. As we get fo look forward to Good Friday and Easter, we're gathering every other week, men with men and then women with women. And so men, we began today. And so we're not going to be meeting as men next week. The ladies are on next week. But it's three weeks of praying with men and three weeks of praying with the women. We also believe in praying men with women and all of that sort of thing, but it's kind of neat to be able to pray men with men for a season and women with women. And so thank you for those who are able to come. A personal invitation for the women to come next week and for the men to come the week after. Bouncing back and forth, we'll remind you. Uh, but for these six weeks, we're gathering on Sundays at 8.45. You know why we're doing that? It, it's not... <laughs> It's not because we want to have some extra traditions in our church. It's not because uh, it's, it's something that good people do. It's because we want to sit at the feet of Jesus. End of story. We want to sit with him, right? We want to know him. I want to watch other men around me learning to know him, to see the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life and in somebody else's prayer. I want to be able to be encouraged by the other men, but I also want to build you up while you build me up. I want to say that the greatest thing in your life, the greatest ambition of your life is to know Jesus, right? It's to sit with him. It's to follow him. This is why he put you on the planet. And so when we come to these groups with other men, we get to encourage that in a unique way. And with other women, we get to encourage that in a unique way. It's not out of tradition. It's not because you're supposed to during Lent. It's because we want to create a prayer, praying church and a praying culture because there's nothing better 
than knowing him and following him and to sit in this, at his feet while we pray, while we have a relationship and a conversation is the beauty of what this is for. So do not be intimidated by this. Do not say to, my, say to yourself, I don't pray very well on my own, much less in front of other people. It's not about that. The space is for you just to come and be, all right? So another invitation to come. Um, we're in John chapter 9. We're in a series that's entitled that you may believe we're in the chapter that is focusing on this man who has been born blind. And I think it's important to understand that the physical healing within the scriptures in the New Testament when Jesus heals somebody or later when one of his apostles heals somebody, it's always an outward sign of something taking place in the inner life. Now, of course, as scientific, technological, advanced people, you may have a problem with the fact that Jesus heals because we can say that these supernatural things don't happen in our world. We don't exactly know what's being recorded in the New Testament. Maybe it's simply mythology being passed along so that people would be deceived later because he got crucified. So we need some reason to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. But I think that the New Testament writers understand this at two levels. They understand what's taking place at a physical level. Jesus Jesus heals people. It's a picture of the inbreaking of a new way of life. What he's saying in these little pictures and illustrations is this is what's coming. This is your future because of me. All things broken being healed. But it's also a picture in another dimension. It's a picture of the inner heart. It's a picture of the inner life. When Jesus heals somebody physically, he's always saying, think about your life on the inside as well. See, what they are saying is that while some are born blind and can't physically see, the Bible teaches us that every single one of us is born spiritually blind, incapable of healing ourselves, in need of somebody to break into our world with the offer of a new heart. Why a new heart and not simply new eyes? The reason is because we always see from our hearts, don't we? I see the world from my heart. I think we even sang that old song, the first song this morning. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. We always see from our heart. And when Jesus breaks into somebody's life, he may heal you physically. That can happen. That may happen in this world or it may happen in the next. But what Jesus is saying is, I want to heal your life. I want to heal your Heart, I want you to be able to see again a new reality which is based on the inbreaking of a new creation, old things being healed because of Jesus. So, we're going to read this story, of course, on two dimensions. I'm going to take you through two points today. Number one, we're going to look at, there's lots of ways to break down this text, but we're going to look at it maybe a little bit differently today. Number one, we're going to look at a beautiful reason to believe. And number two, a compelling sight to behold. So the two points, a beautiful reason to believe and a compelling sight to behold. Look again at verse one. As he passed by, this is Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, if you've ever really wondered what Jesus was really, really like, these chapters are some of the best chapters to go for some of the best clues. John chapter 8, which we just finished, I think we preached 
four sermons from one chapter. Jesus is doing different things in chapter 8. There's lots of movement. John chapter 9 is exclusively focused on this man. John commits an entire chapter to these conversations as it unfolds and as it's unpacked. The light of the world in context, this is Jesus. Jesus says he is the self-proclaimed light of the world. He has been at this incredible feast because Jesus likes to party. Jesus likes to have fun. He's a participant in social events. Jesus, we don't want to caricature as somebody who's always on the sidelines, always kind of frowning at fun. Jesus is continually accused of being a drunk and a glutton. You would have liked spending time with Jesus. Jesus throughout this chapter, the chapters leading up to chapter 9, he has spent time at a feast and a festival. At the end of that, he is the self-proclaimed light of the world. Now, the light of the world leaves the temple, and he begins to go out into the world, and so you get a glimpse of what happens when the light begins to shine upon different people. He has left the temple, and he encounters a man who is described to us as having been blind from birth, and his reaction to this man's need is in many ways reason enough for you to want to believe. Maybe you don't believe, but when you see Jesus' reaction to this man, you should say, I want to know more about Jesus. If this is how he responds to brokenness and to need and to marginalized people, I should at least want to believe. Maybe you don't believe, but I hope you want to. And here we're provided with a snapshot of the heart of Jesus. It's not manicured. It's not edited. It's not Instagram. It's authentic and it's candid and it's completely entrenched in the moment. You want to know one thing about Jesus? Jesus is consistently present. How difficult is it to be present with people? And we are so distracted. Like my kids are like, Dad, put down your phone. I'm like, I know, I'm not present. Jesus in the Gospels is present. Jesus could be going somewhere. He's got an agenda. He's going to Jerusalem, and he sees need. Somebody calls his name, and it's like he's like, he just kind of dials in, and he sees it. He sees the person. Jesus is consistently present. You get a picture of the heart of Christ. Jesus is with his disciples, and they are walking by, and John tells us in verse 1 that Jesus sees this man who has been born blind. And all you need to notice is Jesus moving toward him. That's the big movement of the story. Jesus sees, Jesus moves toward. This is always his movement. It is the unavoidable, always repeated, ingrained choreography of Jesus. He's moving toward. He's dancing towards. He's always going towards the need. He's always, every time, making his way towards sinners and sufferers, not away from them. And as they're walking by, the disciples ask Jesus what may appear to be a pretty insensitive question, at least to the modern ear. But let me assure you, in many ways, this was a very acceptable question, if not a difficult one, at the time. Verse 2, and his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Now, really, the disciples are asking a question about roots, about the causes of what's going on in this man's life. He has evidently had a very challenging childhood. Now he's an adult. He's a man. He has been unable to see since he was born, which likely meant that he has been unable to work and to provide. And if that is the case, then most likely his prospects of getting married and having a family are severely diminished and limited. And later verses, which we didn't get to read, but are clearly recorded in chapter 9, we also find out that this man was a beggar which meant that his family at this point in his life was either unable or unwilling to care for him and to provide for his daily needs. And so they're walking by this man, and the disciples say to Jesus, Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I'm just going to assume that many of us share the exact same point of view when it comes to suffering. And when it comes to challenge and pain, if I'm suffering, I must have done something to be able to precipitate and cause what's going on in my life. Or the converse is also true. If I'm not suffering, it must be because I've done something right to deserve the life that I'm leading. This is what most people would call an understanding of karma. This is karma. Karma is essentially a cycle of cause and effect. You reap what you sow. What goes around comes around. Is this man's suffering his fault, Jesus? Let me say this. If Christianity is driven by karma, then you have no compelling reason to become a Christian or to follow Jesus. How come? Because the world operates on the principles of karma, and you don't need a relationship with Jesus Christ to get into a worldview that says you're going to reap what you sow. Do you feel that? I don't need Jesus because the world clearly already operates on these principles. The great philosopher, his name is Bono. This is what he writes about karma. The universe operates by karma. We all know that. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. There is some atonement, a payment built in, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Another writer, Benjamin Bayani, he says, karma bides its time. You will always have to watch out. Karma is unforgiving and always gets payback. Subtly, you may assume that your life actually operates according to the principles of karma. Maybe you did actually grow up in a Buddhist or a Hindu family or background, or maybe you have simply been the product of the great American Protestant work ethic that essentially says, man, put it in, you're going to get it out. You're going to reap what you sow. This is ingrained into the universe that we live in. It's just simply subtle or it's subconscious. It's the way we think about the world. And maybe it's also the way in which you think about the creator of our world. 
Now, let me also say, little caveat, this does not in any way negate the reality that our actions oftentimes have reciprocating effects, right? We know this. If you stay up all night long, you're a student, you're supposed to be going to sleep early, studying hard, but you play Call of Duty all night long, you're going to wake up, you're going to have a tough morning. You're not going to do as well as you had hoped. If you eat burritos all day long, you're going to look down and realize you become a burrito. It's just the way these things happen. There is often a cause and effect. There's a reciprocating action and reaction. There are natural things that are at play, but this is what Jesus also enters into because what is he saying beginning to end in the Gospels? New creation is coming. You see, this is the way the world often works, but I'm breaking in with a new way of thinking and a new way of living. Let me also mention that if you live and work and exist Within this, you reap what you sow mentality and worldview. The interpretation of your circumstances and the circumstances of people around you is always going to lead to either guilt and shame on the one hand, or it's going to lead to pride and hubris on the other. How come? Because if life is giving you lemons, then it must mean within a worldview where karma is driving things that you're a lemon, right? that you're the bad egg that you are the failure. And if you look at your life and other people aren't in the same storm as you are, and you're realizing, man, this has got to be because of me, something that I have done, again, please hear, the Bible isn't minimizing our sin. Jesus is not eroding the fact that we may do things that have reactions, right, and counter-reactions, but he is entering in with a new perspective and a new possibility. This is what Jesus is saying If on the one hand, you look at life and other people aren't in your storm, you're going to feel like a failure. It's going to lead you to shame, isolation, anxiety, depression, isolation, all of the things that precipitate from saying, I am wrong. But then on the other hand, if you're doing really well, you're going to inevitably say, this is because of me. I mean, if you reap what you sow and you're getting some incredible benefits, you're on a high. You're going to look at other people who are on the bottom and say, you haven't worked as hard. Things haven't worked out for you. I must be doing things well. And what happens when you move through life with pride and hubris is you never actually get to love your neighbor because you can't. You have to judge your neighbor. Right? You're separated and you're distinct from them. It always leads to pride and isolation. Tom Wright, he says, we have to stop thinking of the world as a kind of moral slot machine where people put in a coin, a good act or an evil one, and get out a particular result, a reward, or a punishment. Of course, actions always have consequences. Good things often happen as a result of good actions. Kindness produces gratitude. And bad things often happen through bad actions. Drunkenness causes car accidents. But this isn't inevitable. Kindness is sometimes scorned. Some drunkards always get away with it. See, and Jesus is saying that something so much more rich and mysterious than karma is at play. Remember, the disciples were looking for what? They were looking for a cause. They saw suffering, and they asked a question about the cause of it. Jesus, was it that this man sinned, or was it his parents 
What's going on in his world? And when Jesus says, it's not the man, it's not his family, but it's that the works of God might be displayed in him, he's dismantling this way of thinking that assumes I can always find a personal responsibility when it comes to the difficult things that are going on in our lives. He's breaking down karma and he's introducing something so much better. This is what Jesus is doing here. It's not that this man sinned. He clearly says that. It's not his fault. How do we know that? Because we're not just given the detail that he was blind, but that he was blind from birth. Something has happened in this man's life beyond his control. He hasn't been, made a big moral mistake. This is just the brokenness of the world. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Was it his family if it wasn't him? Is it kind of the sins of the mom and dad being passed along generation by generation? Is he reaping what somebody else has sown? And Jesus actually goes, no. That's not what's at play here. What does he say? He says, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. As one writer put it, God intends for his glory and his goodness and his power to be on display in this man's life. And this helps us when it comes to suffering and pain avoid two very common errors in our thinking. Number one, as I've already mentioned, causality. It's easy to go to Lord Jesus, God, whoever you are up in the sky, if I'm not a Christian, why is this happening to me? I need to know. I'm looking for a cause. You, many of you know that I went through two very difficult years just by God's goodness and grace kind of emerging out of what happened to me that I shared with our church quite a while ago. I guarantee you, and I can uh, attest, during those years I'm asking the question, God, is it in me? Have I caused this? What is going on in my world? What's going on in my life? Am I reaping what I have sown? Right, we have to ask those questions. So we're looking for causality. Jesus dismantles that. He says, stop looking for causes. I'm going to take you what he is pointing you to in a moment. And he also eliminates the possibility of absurdity in our suffering. Look, if you don't believe in a sovereign God who's on his throne ruling all things, then there is no purpose and point to human suffering. But if he is good, and if he is sovereign, and if he is ruling all things, then we can lean into the fact that he's God and we're not. Our suffering has a purpose and a point. It's not completely absurd, as difficult as it may be. There's a writer, a pastor, theologian, his name's Don Carson. He explores the mysteries of God's purposes for a moment. He plays a little bit of a, a what-if game as he explores causes. What is God up to when somebody gets, for example, in his illustration, cancer? So let me read what he writes. He says, a godly woman in her middle years is diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. What is God doing? My little brain can imagine several possibilities. At one level, he may be providentially allowing the effluence of the fall to take their course, a constant reminder that it is appointed to all of us to die and then face judgment. He may be preparing her for eternity. It is a great grace to know when you are going to die and prepare for it. He may be shocking her 20-something son who is living his life indifferent to the gospel to prod him into self-examination and repentance. He may use her testimony about the joy of the Lord even in the midst of suffering to call another of her children into vocational ministry. He may be using her as a way to teach people in her church what it looks like to die well, anticipating several other, other deaths in the next two years. 
He may be teaching her minister husband to slow down and care about his family and, in principle, other people instead of being endlessly busy with the ministry. He may be sparing her from living long enough to witness the moral destruction of her daughter. Her funeral may be the means by which several of her unconverted relatives for whom she has been praying will come to faith, conversions for which she would happily give her life. Perhaps one of those converts will become a Christian pastor, pastor of rare gift, whose ministry of proclamation will touch thousands. Perhaps she is hiding some deep bitterness and hate in her life, and God is using this means to confront her. He goes on to say, I have barely started a list of possible things God may be doing, and I have a small brain. What does the omniscient God think he is doing? In other words, sometimes we have to cover our mouths and confess in faith that we cannot possibly grasp all that God is doing when somebody suffers. The Bible never proclaims to us or teaches us that our suffering is always and only for our benefit. Yeah, there are places in the Bible that say pain produces endurance and endurance produces character. And there are things that suffering can do in us and around us that will stretch us in ways that are profoundly difficult, that last, in our opinion, way too long. But as we look back at them Maybe by God's goodness and grace, we can say that that stretching was good. But I guarantee you there are things in your life you have not found the silver lining for. You're still waiting. Or you're still wondering, God, when are you going to show up? Friends, that's what these candles are about. I mean, this is what this season is for. It's the possibility of question. It's the reality of brokenness in the world and in me. Things aren't working the way they ought to work in my life and in the world around me. Jesus. What are you doing? See, we want God to show up. We believe that pain has a point and has a purpose, but we are allowed to express it. Christianity never calls anybody to be a stoic. This is what the Psalms are about. They're deeply emotional. You can wrestle with God, but as Tim Keller put it, he says, I think the main reason we should be patient under suffering, listen, is that it glorifies God, and that for Christians is our greatest pleasure and duty. When we endure suffering with all the patience we can muster, we treat God as God, and that glorifies him regardless of any other results we can discern. Do you see what he's saying? What gives God the most amount of glory is when you say, Jesus, I'm not following you because the path is easy. I'm not following you because you've answered all my prayers. I'm not following you because you've given me a promotion that I waited for for a long time. I am not following you because you gave me all this, these children and this wonderful family and all of these goods. I'm not following you because of anything you've done. I'm simply following you because you're God. And while I'm waiting for you to show up in my life, what honors him the most what gives him the most glory, what gives him the most honor and worship is for you to say, I don't do this because you've blessed me. I do it because you're God and because you're good, because of grace and not because of karma. He goes, and this is the most compelling reason to believe. He's God and he's displayed it in Jesus. And we wait Different things and different seasons and different reasons. This man was blind from birth. He's waited a long time for healing. And as his eyes are restored, you see that his heart 
is restored to. Let me take you to point two. A beautiful reason to believe God is God. We are not. He's faithful. Wait on him. Number two, a compelling sight to behold. Look at verse three. A compelling sight to behold. If you've got a Bible, open it to John 9. Take it to a few different places. Could be on your phone. Could be the physical Bible. Either one. Verse three. Jesus answered. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which, meant, which means sent. It's the missionary pool. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. Some of you may be thinking, as we are Jesus, what are you doing spitting on the ground, making mud? I'd be like, that's a little weird. Why did you do that to my eyes? I'm going to go wash as quickly as possible. In the ancient Near East, saliva was thought to have medicinal value. And let me just say, I'm going to get here in a moment. Jesus spits on the ground and he makes mud because it's a Sabbath. He works. He puts his hands into the dirt. And controversy is about to erupt because Jesus takes a moment to say the Sabbath is about healing. And I'm going to heal this man, but I'm going to do it physically. Right? He puts water into the dirt and he creates mud and he puts it on this man's eyes. And he says, you haven't been able to see anyway. Walk to the pool of Siloam. Probably needs help. Go wash. And it says that this man did that and he came back seeing. This man's life is literally illuminated by Jesus. And what we get to see in the rest of this chapter is the way that this man, as an eyewitness, we become eyewitnesses. We become eyewitnesses to the way in which his life, his thinking, his behavior, and his conversations shift and change. Please do not forget that this guy has been sidelined and he is characterized as a beggar, all right? And you're about to see a complete transformation in this man's life. My question before we dive in, is that happening for you in any way in this season? If you were a follower of Jesus, do you say, man, he's changing my life. He's changing the way I think. He's changing the way I speak. He's changing the way I play. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, that more and more of you get submitted so that you follow him with everything you've got. You're going to see it in this man's life. See, and as this chapter unfolds, as I mentioned, there, begin, there begins to be this point of controversy in the story, and it's the Sabbath. At first, there's controversy with his neighbors. They're like, I don't know if this is the guy. He's absolutely different. He's changed. He kind of looks like the guy we knew who was beside the road. This is what they say. He looks like him, but he can see. We're not sure who he is. That controversy gets shifted over to the Pharisees. They start to argue with Jesus about what took place in this healing, they begin to be convinced that Jesus is a Sabbath breaker, and therefore he couldn't be the Son of God. And amidst all of this controversy, what you're going to see in this man's life is this growing boldness and courage that really seems to pick up steam as the story gets going and as he gets more clarity about Jesus. But can I remind you before I read any of these details that the order of the story matters? Remember where this man was? He's beside the road. He doesn't cry out for Jesus. Jesus sees him. Jesus moved towards this man's life. 
Jesus has a conversation with him in order to transform him and change him. He makes the mud. He sends him off to the pool of Siloam. He says, come back. And he came back seeing. The movement matters. The order of things, the grace of God breaking into this man's life. You see, something other than karma had broken in. And now we get to see him live with a newfound boldness and a newfound purpose. I want to read just a couple of the verses to capture this. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, if you've got a phone or a Bible. We're later in the story, and here's what we read. So for the second time, obviously, but there's been a first time. We haven't even read that part, but now we're near the end. For the second time, they, the Pharisees, called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Why do you also want, do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, We do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. Listen to his boldness. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And you could feel the, the, the rising hardness of heart in these religious leaders. You can see their penchant for karma, to earn the love and the favor of God. You can feel their blindness toward the true purposes of Sabbath. What Sabbath for is to heal your heart. Why do we go pray today as men in order to heal our hearts? Why are we singing these songs in order to heal our hearts? And Jesus is here healing a man physically, spiritually. They want nothing to do with it. You've broken the law. See, they have gotten lost along the way. And John tells us that Jesus heard that they had cast him out. This is verse 35. And having found him, he said to him, this is near the end of the story, he says to the blind man, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Most likely he recognized the voice. This is the voice of the man who spoke to me. This is the voice of the man, right, who covered my eyes with mud and told me to wash. I can see. I don't know what he looked like before. And he says, tell me, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. What a transformation. Didn't even know Jesus' name gets touched by grace, something breaks into his life. Everybody says, no way, no how, not him. This guy cannot be included in the grace of God. He's obviously getting what he deserves. His life is being ruled and governed by karma. Something breaks into his life that's so much more beautiful and so much better. And he doesn't become a journalist. He doesn't become an evangelist. Yes, he is speaking the name of Jesus Christ. He becomes a worshiper. That's the goal. Missions exists. 
Because worship doesn't. I want your heart to worship because you see from your heart. And Jesus gets him at the end. He gets him. He goes, this is my man now. Do you want to believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, Jesus? I'll believe in him. I who am speaking to you am he. And he bowed down and worshiped. He worshiped. That's the point of it all. Eyes of his heart fully seeing again. Those whom we assume, friends, those who we assume would be in, in this story, are out, aren't they? The Pharisees, they come and they say to Jesus at the end, having heard what he said, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, as verse 40, and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have had no guilt, but now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Those who we thought would be in or out, and those who we know are on the out, Jesus brings way in. Charles Spurgeon says, it's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. And Jesus wants us to feel again that we have to come poor, we have to come helpless and blind, or we can't come at all. And that's hard. As I pull it together, let me say this. The most compelling, and compelling means irresistibly attractive. The most compelling part of this story, the heart-rending, eye-opening, repentance-provoking image in this story isn't actually the blind man whose life is completely transformed and changed into a worshiper as beautiful as that is. Remember this point? about this beautiful, compelling sight, because the time would soon come when people would walk by another poor, suffering, rejected man, well acquainted with sorrow, and ask the exact same question, who sinned, this man or somebody else, that he should suffer in this way? Why is that man on the cross? What has he done? Whom has he offended? They wanted a cause. Who sinned that this man should suffer like this? See, when you go deeply into the chapter, when you go deeply into the gospel, you see that the answer, the cause, is you. And it's me. Right? He's suffering for me. Jesus takes my karma upon himself, and he pays the penalty so that something else could erupt in our hearts and in our lives and in our midst, something more beautiful, something better, something harder, something stronger. It's for me, my sin, my hard heart, my self-righteousness, my words misspoken, my lack of love, my attitude. Jesus is there for me. And yes, the gospels take me to the cause. My sin and yours is the cause of the cross, but he's always looking at the purpose, isn't he? He's always looking at the purpose. And the purpose is that the glory of God might be on display through the person and the work of Jesus, that we might know who he is and what he's done. Going back to Bono as I close, he says, grace is my favorite word in the lexicon of the English language. It's a word I'm depending on. The universe operates by karma. We all know that for every action. There's an equal and opposite reaction. There's some atonement built in, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so grace enters the picture to say, I'll take the blame. I'll carry the cross. It is a powerful idea. Grace interrupting 
karma. Friends, Jesus didn't philosophize about suffering in order to get himself off the hook. Jesus became a human being in order to put himself on the hook. I'm here to help you understand suffering. I am the most compelling vision. Your heart will not be moved as much as you think it is by this man born blind who's healed. Your heart will be moved when you see Jesus, well acquainted with sorrow, people pointing a finger at him and saying, why is he suffering? And then you go, for me, for me. Let that go deep into your life. Grace is so much more beautiful than karma. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your unending love. It knows no end. It knows no bounds. It can't be stopped by me and what I've done, by me and what I haven't done. I'm so thankful that your love for me is not contingent on my love for you. I pray that would sink into our life, that your love for us is not contingent upon our affection for you. We may be all over the map this morning, completely distracted, thinking about things tomorrow, the week to come. Lord Jesus, capture our attention, our affection for these last moments. Because you are alive. You are well. You have interrupted the natural flow of the universe by laying down your life, the perfect one for sinners. Lord Jesus, now I can know that when bad things happen, it's not because you don't love me. And when good things happen, I can know for sure it's not because I'm great. All is grace. All comes from you. And you are always good. And may we honor you in season and out. There are always seasons of plenty. There are seasons of wanting. But the heart that says, I don't care about that. I just love my Lord because he loves me is what it means to be a Christian. Come in and renew us, to restore us, to change us, to heal us. We eat this meal in honor of you. In Jesus' name, amen.